Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Hello, all, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. I'm thankful to be joined today by my old friend, Warren Stoddard, who is Chief Executive of Connor Clark and Lund Financial Group in Toronto and Vancouver and other parts of Canada. Warren, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. I want to say that we've known each other 25 to 30 years back in my consulting days and before you were CEO. That's correct. It's been a long time. As far as I can remember, Connor Clark and Lund has been one of the leading employee-owned independent firms in Canada. I think it actually might be the largest employee-owned investment firm in Canada. Uh, we think we are. It's a little bit like being what people said about Wayne Gretzky, uh, that he was world famous in Canada, but uh, we'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> well, I know in conversations with you, one of the things that you've pointed out is that while your Canadian success is nice to have and um, impressive, I think it's your global success and the fact that you've built both global strategies and a relatively global client base that might be more impressive. Yeah, it's been a big change in our business. When we first got to know you, um, almost all of our revenues and certainly pretty much all of our assets were invested by Canadian pension clients in Canadian equities. And in the second half of last year, our global equity assets under management surpassed our Canadian equity assets. And that's an indication of just how global our business has become. I think looking back 30-ish years ago, Warren, when I got to know you, the firm was maybe 15 to $20 billion. It was an institutional, as you said, Canadian securities-oriented business with the primary client base being Canadian. You were just starting to go overseas and, and out of the country. And now it's a $100 billion plus global enterprise with multiple affiliates that you have acquired and tacked on through the development of CCNL Financial Group. So maybe you could give us a little bit of a sense of how you've built the business over time and, and kind of what your aspirations have been. Well, it has been quite a journey. My partner, Mike Freund, and I came to this business in the mid to late 1990s with a view to introducing some ideas that would have been novel at the time for the Canadian asset management industry. We started to build on what's become known as a multi-affiliate strategy at that point in time. Around the uh, turn of the century, at the uh, end of the first tech boom, we were early on, but uh, had some promising signs in the multi-affiliate approach that we uh, launched up to that point in time. But the majority of the revenues of the business were still coming from a single Canadian equity product that experienced a catastrophic performance break and never wants to waste a good crisis. We use that example or uh, opportunity rather to um, really start afresh with a blank sheet of paper and say, if we were going to optimize our ability to be successful going forward, what would we do? And, and the decision was to organize the business around the idea that we'd be successful if we got as good as we could at attracting and retaining talented individuals. So since that time, the mission of the business has been to provide for the self-actualization of the people who work within it. And we're confident that if we do that, we're going to have a successful enterprise. Give the audience a sense of how the business breaks down in terms of the asset base and, and roughly how much is in the relative affiliates or the various affiliates businesses versus the 
own business of Connor Clark and Lund? The Connor Clark and Lund Investment Management, the founding business, is an affiliate like all others. Um, it represents the largest part of our assets under management. It might be more instructive to talk about where our revenues come from, which is kind of interesting. It's not quite a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, but it's close to 25% from each of public markets, investment products, private markets, high net worth, and the returns on investments that we make as principal on our own balance sheet. I think that last part actually is a relatively unique aspect to your business. So what kinds of investments do the partners make? We invest alongside of our clients in the private market asset classes where uh, generally clients require that we have skin in the game. And uh, we provide seed capital to our affiliates so they can establish records in public markets products that they think are promising. So you are making effectively GP commitments alongside your clients into relative or varying hedge private equity real asset investments. That's correct. How long have you been doing that? Oh, gosh. I mean, 10 or 15 years since we began to get into the private markets businesses. In fact, our first investment in private markets was made wholly from our own balance sheet. And that was in a 150 megawatt run of the river hydro project that's located in British Columbia, Canada. One of the things I would think would be interesting and challenging for you as chief executive is how you allocate capital when you have capital demands for various private market projects when you've got an institutional business to support, a wealth management business to develop, and other affiliates to um, prospect and potentially take into the fold versus the ones you already have, seems to me like there'd be a lot of demand for capital. Yeah, it's a really significant challenge and something that we are having a bunch of discussions on currently. And it relates actually to how much capital we think we need to keep in the business. And then is there a priority around how it should be deployed and what the criteria are that we should be using to um, evaluate investments? What's interesting though for us is that we've generally had more cash than we've had good investments. So it's actually been an irritant for some that we've maintained for the last several years, nine-figure cash balances on the balance sheet. Which is unusual, as you would know. And that maybe brings us back to the question around making other investments or acquisitions. What are some of the key criteria that you are looking for in a new affiliate, a new organization to join the fold, or kind of what would be some of the key descriptive aspects of the ones you have? Well, when we're looking um, at new relationships, and these same criteria would apply to all of our existing relationships, it's always three questions in sequence. And the first is, are these folks that we would want to work with and do they want to work with us? In other words, do they understand the nature of the relationship and see value in the functional division of labor that's represented by the partnership that we have? Do they think that this is going to optimize their ability? to create value over time. And if they don't think that that's the case, then odds are they're not going to be good partners and, and we can't be good partners to them. The second criterion is, uh, are they good at what they do? As we know, not everybody is in this industry and you need to make sure that you're going to be able to deliver value if you expect to have a successful business. And then the third is, do we think that this is a business opportunity in which we can you know, build some client assets and revenues over time? That's inverse to how many people go about it, where they think about product and geography and, and market first and uh, partnership third. Or they think about it in terms of, well, what's available and what are bankers showing me or, or what shows up on my doorstep and what does it cost? That's how does right. Cost in, how does cost and valuation factor into your thinking? Well, often we're building businesses as opposed to buying them. 
Mm-hmm. And what we know we don't want to do is finance the retirement of those who are choosing to depart the business, leaving an obligation on the part of those who remain. It's an interesting comparison in that, A, I think there have been very few high quality commercial grade startups or, or new endeavors in our industry broadly over the last 10 plus years, 15, 20 plus years ago, there seemed to be many willing entrepreneurs. Do you see the same thing kind of trends among the, the folks that you're talking to? And is that one of the reasons why you're maintaining such large cash balances is because it's just so hard either to find high quality folk or folks that are really willing to be more entrepreneurial and start things with you? Well, there's no question. There are more people who say they would like to be entrepreneurs than actually want to have that experience because it means some element of sacrifice and risk and and a concession probably to some of the creature comforts that they could have within a traditional employment environment. Yeah, I, I find the same thing. Once you kind of get out the pencil and sharpen it a bit in terms of how people expect to be paid relative to what they might be offered in the marketplace and what recruiters are bringing to them and just the, the absolute risk of it all. There's risk in everything, but there's particularly strong risk in starting a new venture or morphing a company, changing your objectives in partnership with a new business and out you go. And you don't know if you're going to be successful, but I think probably like us, one of the things that we both look for is alignment and alignment's actually another tough thing to find. I find really hard. And I think that's been one of the secrets to our success is being very focused on establishing cultural and structural alignments of interest between ourselves and our partners and within all parts of our organization. So you really don't want to leave any daylight in between the desired outcome and and, um, the uh, things that are likely to motivate individuals. What are some of the investment strategies or new markets areas that you would like to do more in if you could? Well, I think the area of what are called active specialties remains interesting. So these can be public markets products that might be described as absolute return or relative return, but in areas where opportunities are less mined out in part because the universe of investable securities is large and the uh, capacity for any one individual strategy is relatively small. So I think of global small cap or international small cap as being in that category. Frontier markets could be. I think absolute return alpha strategies are very interesting now, and especially as people become a little bit disenchanted with large cap developed market uh, equity and fixed income betas. One of the interesting things about the first few strategies you mentioned is that international small cap, but especially frontier, do have relatively limited capacities, um, at least I think by most people's judgment, and if run well, Uh, this isn't going to be a significant portion of your asset base. So one question would be, why spend time, resource, and effort on a relatively small component that will never be a big component of the financial picture of CCNL? Well, it might be the combination of those things that you need in order to meet your clients' needs. And I'm thinking more particularly about the high net worth space where our clients ask us to compile the portfolio that will meet their risk and return um, expectations. Um, things that are less well correlated and have higher alpha opportunities can contribute disproportionately to portfolio outcomes in those situations. And so we need to be thinking about them, even if they're only going to be a smaller part of our P&L. We look back again over time and Connor Clark and Lund is, is now roughly 40 years old and you are on your second generation of ownership and leadership, I believe. Larry Lund, Gord McDougall, other founders were the first 
you and Mike Foyne to the second. And, and my gut is that you've probably got the third generation in the wings and you've got some pretty good depth that you're working on. We do. We've got a uh, group of folks who we describe as the MDs, managing directors. That's the title they hold within our organization. Um, there's four, a fifth on the way who will all take on certain responsibilities from Mike and myself. It's a belief of ours that you don't replace people, but you do have to um, bring succession to the functions that were being performed by folks who uh, move on to retirement. And, and while Mike and I could be broader generalists and split the duties up between the two of us, we know that the business is larger, more complex, and it requires more specialized knowledge in particular areas. So there are going to be a larger number of leaders in the next generation of the business than there were in this one. And, and you know, they're going to be focused in different areas. I mean, marketing and product development was something that was almost an afterthought 20 years ago, and it's a big part of what we do today. Well, as you know, Warren, it's incredibly rare in this business to find a three-generation or even a two-generation employee-led business of real means. So to have a $100 billion, 100% employee-owned business is very unusual. What do you attribute your sustainability to? And when we get through that, and I'll ask you why you have foregone, I'm sure, plenty of M&A opportunities and a chance to create great liquidity for you and your partners. Yeah, I mean, I'll take a step back and say, as a multi-boutique, we face a succession challenge at two levels, at the parent entity. We don't describe it as a parent, generally speaking. We talk about being partners with our affiliates, but technically, that's a relationship, and at the affiliate level. At the affiliate level, we're actually into our fifth generation of ownership within the founding business, Connor Clark and Lund Investment Management, through an internal transition mechanism that works really well, allows for equity to be equity be to be transferred between uh, partners on an annual basis in small amounts and, a, and an overall transition over multiple years. The parent entity is a corporation, not a partnership, wholly owned by people who work within the business. And um, we're very mindful of the fact that the most common reason for firms to go from private to acquisition by a larger or public entity is that they fail to address the ownership succession challenge. What we've done is provided for a mechanism and a business strategy that should allow it to take place. What it means is that nobody is compensated through equity ownership of the parent. And in doing so, uh, we're able to retain 100% of earnings on an annual basis. So we don't pay a dividend at the parent. And those financial resources are available annually to repurchase shares from those who retire or leave the business otherwise. Well, what's interesting about that, and that is also unusual, and that you are not um, taking significant gains um, or at least significant distributions from the parent to pad people's compensation and total income packages, which obviously the economics have grown to be quite substantial. Does that basically take significant pressure off the up and coming partners ability to afford ability to leverage themselves? It just seems to me that you've kind of turned this argument around to not what kind of a mechanism could we set up that might be a discount to fair market value and, and where the M&A world uh, might price us, but it's really more about what would keep Connor Clark and Lund going. That's exactly it. And it's the way we think about a lot of problems is understand the objective and set the strategy to meet that objective. Um, I think a lot of folks jump to tactics first and then back into the objective. So we said, if we want to maintain the business to be 100% owned by the people who work here, then we're going to need to make some concessions with respect to claims on current cash. And we need to provide a mechanism that supports the assertion that we are making that we want to keep it as a private company. It's highly unusual. I've now used that term at least three or four times in this conversation, but it really is. 
And you know that both from the bankers that call on you and, and looking at your competition and reading daily about what goes on in our business. And there is even from some of the employee-owned peers that you have had in Canada over the years, people like Jaroslawski Frazier and Philip Sager North and other substantial businesses. Uh, I don't know that there is another um, substantial employee-owned business, multiple tens of billions in Canada. Uh, the next one down the list is, is considerably smaller. And, and this is a real change. You know, when I entered this industry in Canada 28 years ago, there were a number of employee-owned firms of substance, and they have one by one either um, failed through poor execution or ended up being acquired like Jaroslawski or Phillips Hager and North by large financial institutions as a way of providing for ownership transition. Which can be done very well and can provide for great outcomes, not just for the sellers, but for the rest of the business if they're in fact adding resource capability and providing the clientele of those companies with basically better solutions uh, and putting them in a better position than they otherwise would be. As you know, that's often not the case. It's often a case of very different agendas. That's right. And we're really mindful of that. And not being at the behest of somebody else's agenda has allowed us to think longer term and make sure that there's not a conflict of interest between how we'd like to operate the business and how an external shareholder um, wants us to. It's a relatively unique position. It's one that's been taken by some old line firms in the U.S. industry like GMO, Dodge and Cox, Capital Group, and some others, but not many. Not, not many really in the history of relatively large and successful U.S. investment firms. Yeah, and to be fair, it's not without challenges. As you get bigger, we're going to be close to 800 people um, towards the end of this year. And maintaining that culture that we had when we were smaller through a period of significant growth is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a problem. It's a high-class problem, but it's still yeah. a problem. What are some of your near-term aspirations, kind of, given the success that you and Mike have driven and overseen? You know, what's the next act? Oh, <laughs> management succession is our biggest challenge. The, the first time that I had a discussion with Larry Lund about coming to work in the business, the day before there was a quote in the newspaper that I cut out and I showed him. And to this day, I have it sitting in my desk. <laughs> and it says that um, succession is the final test of greatness. And uh, it was a lot more fun when I could uh, needle Larry with that. And now that's the challenge that I face. So it's very much on my mind that we achieve this and, and, and leave a business and really importantly, that enables others to have the same chance that I did. And so not looking to leave a legacy or try and reach out from the grave to influence how people operate the business in post my departure. But I'm really conscious of the fact that whether folks have been here a year or 20 years, they've made a contribution to the success that I've enjoyed. And so I have an obligation to make sure that their careers aren't coterminous with mine and they have a chance to have the same fulfill fulfilling experience that I had. What are clients telling you? Maybe most important to view it from the client's lens. What are your clients and those prospects that you'd like to work with telling you about your firm and what you need to do or what you need to offer to continue to be vital and important to them? Uh, product relevance is critical, and they're not always going to be able to figure out how products should evolve on their own. You know, the famous Henry Ford statement about if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Well, nobody was telling us to get into private markets 10 or 15 years ago, but people knew that they were going to find attractive a alternative that provided less well-correlated returns at levels that were 
superior to, you know, what they could find in the public or public equity or debt markets. So I think if you consider what the clients are looking for, um, which in every case is real returns, then that'll lead you to seek out opportunities to maintain a product offering that's vital and relevant. And how does that point, how does that thesis, Warren, differ in Europe versus Canada versus Asia versus the U.S.? Oh, well, different products are represented in client portfolios in different ways, depending on the market and um, history and market structure uh, play into that as well. You know, it's easier for us to have identified, for instance, a situation in Canada where um, clients were truly underrepresented in real estate, notwithstanding the, you know, challenged um, uh, situation of fixed income that was bound to, bound to unfold eventually. I think it's just instructive to think about the effort and the specificity of the varying markets in which Connor Clark and Lund um, has clients around the world. And the fact that you've built specific vehicles and marketing efforts and investment strategies around those specific client needs. And that's a lot different than just taking the Canadian Connor Clark and Lund offering and then just repapering it in different markets. Yeah, well, you know, it really depends on how you define yourself. If you think of yourself as a manager of a particular product, then that'll constrain your ability to move into different markets or express your investment skill sets in a different way. But if you think you, your sc- skill sets more in a basic fashion, like how you think you can uh, add value, then that can be converted into different product forms depending on the market or the client. You know, we have a quantitative equity capability that we sell as a long-only Canadian product. We sell it as a market-neutral global product. We sell it as an emerging markets extension product, but they all run off the same engine. And I guess that's one of the points that you made earlier, which is to the extent you can add another investment engine or a significant complement to an existing engine, and then you've got to be convinced that there is demand in one of the markets that you serve and that it's not, you know, either so fringe or, or would be so tough to figure out how it's going to be material in some way in the near term. That's right. You know, and as we've gotten bigger, we've able, been able to look to smaller and nichier strategies. At the outset, it was just about providing an alternative style within Canadian equities. Now we can do something that could be very niche in the absolute return space and still find a home for it. I think it's really been a very attractive place to work. Uh, at least from a number of the folks that I've known at your firm uh, over time who have uniformly said that to just a really nice success story um, that has lasted for those, these 40 years. And I hope that there are another good 40 years post your <laughs> leadership and, uh, and post my time here. But I really appreciate, Warren, you spending a little bit of time with me today to talk about the firm and how you built it. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And, and in that 40 years, there really have been two 20-year periods. And Larry's Lund's greatest gift to uh, us was the ability to understand that the second 20 years of the firm's existence were going to look a lot different than the first 20. And I think uh, for my partner, Mike, and myself, we know the next 20 has got to look a lot different than the last 20. And we hope we can continue to be successful, but it means being open-minded and, and continually questing to uh, understand what we need to do to to uh, maintain that relevance and vitality going forward. I think it's the mark of a good leader. And you and Mike have been that. So congratulations, continued good wishes, and look forward to seeing you before too long. Thanks, Jazz. Likewise. Likewise.